This is Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks, and welcome to my podcast series, The Voice of Leadership. voice of leadership and this is part two of our conversation with liberty and justice for all if you missed part one please go back and listen to part one and today i'm continuing with my special guest dr marvin a mcmickle who is a pastor he is a professor academic he is an educator author community leader and so much more. Last time we talked a lot about his history and background and leading the church and continuing to also do community service. And we talked a bit about what businesses can do today to be more effective at leading diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we're going to continue that conversation in this part two episode. So Dr. McMickle, thank you so much for joining me for part two. I really appreciate you hanging in there and continuing our conversation. Thank you for inviting me back. I I enjoy part one, looking forward to part two. Fantastic. So I'm gonna start with this question about the current climate and what's going on right now. We know that there's a Me Too movement, there's a Black Lives Matter movement out there. What can business leaders learn from both of these movements? They can learn that our society is far more diverse than they may have been assuming in terms of, again, their board of directors, their management team, the way in which they hire, the way in which they advertise, the way in which they divest. Most Americans have no idea what the 1790 Immigration Act is. The 1790 Immigration Act essentially said, with respect to immigration from Europe, the United States is a white nation. It's a white people's country. It's been that way for the last 200 plus years. Somebody has to help us understand that the world has changed since 1790. I don't see much help coming from the current White House on that issue. So business leaders must lead the way not just in terms of their profits and their losses, but in terms of moving our whole society forward. And I hope they'll see what's happening in the street. It's just a call for inclusion. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that because many people misunderstand what's happening in the street. They don't see the pain. They don't see the agony that may be behind these situations. And they don't recognize that some of these injustices have been going on for years and years and years, just not unveiled to the entire public, but certainly known in the African-American communities. So how would you explain what's going on in the street so that business leaders can have more empathy about that response? Well, let's take each one of these. The Me Too movement began essentially as a cry about the persistence of sexual aggression and sexual assault. Business leaders can be sure that the places where they are doing business are not safe havens 
for sexual abuse and sexual assault. What are your policies? What are your personnel policies that protect women from unwanted sexual advances? What are the signals that you are sending to your employees that any attempt to abuse your female employees will be dealt with in a very serious way? Do you have women in positions of authority? That's the best thing you can do to move in that direction. Same thing is true for Black Lives Matter. Does your company practice racism in its hiring? Does your company allow racism in the way in which it treats its customers? These two groups are simply saying to us, you've got a responsibility as much as the government does to be places where people who are women or ethnic minorities can feel safe, can feel wanted, can feel invited, and can feel affirmed. Okay, thank you for talking about it in that way, that when people are included and there's more of a partnership, you really do get different results. And I think for many people, they have been raising a voice for a long time, maybe haven't been heard, and in some cases, voices have been silenced. And so people have not been able to talk about the sexual abuse or whatever that they may have experienced with some senior leaders in the workplace. And so some of that's just starting to come out now. So I, I hear you saying that organizations need to hear the message, hear what's behind the message, and there really are steps that can be taken to remedy some of the challenges that are going on. Can I give you an example? Yes. I, I think that of the major businesses, and you are in yourself one of these arenas, which is the media, to the extent that media companies have female and ethnic minority anchors or program producers, they're going to get a different kind of programming than would be the case if it was an all-white male panel of anchors. So here in the last few days, a particular cable station, I won't name which one, had an African-American male host who put the spotlight on the number of African-American men who have been falsely imprisoned, spent 20 to 25 years in prison for a crime they did not commit, and have been released with 25 years of their life lost. I am persuaded that the average white television anchor would never have shared the same spotlight on that issue as that black male anchor did. That's just a small example of what happens when you get people in places of influence who can shine the light in places that the average white person would never even think to look. Exactly. And therefore, they would continue to be unaware of what's actually going on, which would be certainly challenging. So let me dial in another piece of this. You and I both have a real respect and interest in Dr. Martin Luther King and his approach to what I would call civil disobedience and nonviolent social change. And I want you to talk a little bit about what you learned from Dr. Martin Luther King, because you had an opportunity to meet him personally, and how are his methods and approaches still relevant today? Well, the first word that I think your audience needs to hear about Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, isn't nonviolence. The first word is courage. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever met a more courageous person because he was putting himself forward on an issue in a location where every day was a dance with death. When you are talking about integrating public facilities and advocating for the right to vote in Alabama, 
Mississippi, Georgia, in the 1950s and the 1960s, you are fundamentally calling for an upheaval of the social order. And that was at a time when civil rights leaders like Medgar Evers were being shot in the back. So before I say anything else about Dr. King, I just want to salute him, his wife, and that inner circle, John Lewis, Andrew Young, Ralph Abernathy, and others. Magnificent courage, because they walked out the front door facing death. And of course, we all know that in the end, that's exactly what happened to him. But he was committed to this nonviolent principle, not as a strategy, but as a lifestyle. And um, I think the world has now come to realize he has fundamentally altered the course of American life. And he did it without firing a shot. Yeah. So what would you say to organizations today? Because we know that some organizations, even though they're standing up for a cause that's really important, they are standing up for maybe not in the same way of being committed, for example, to nonviolence or not necessarily being committed to not committing crimes themselves. Whereas Dr. Martin Luther King was very specific about preparing his people and he taught them how to march in a way that was nonviolent, how to respond to police brutality and abuse and other things that they might experience so that they would not just respond in the moment and do the wrong thing. In other words, the the training was involved. Well, uh, I've been in enough civil rights marches with him and uh, because of him to know that the march was the last part. Mm -hmm. The march was part four of a process. The first process was to identify what is the issue that you are trying to achieve. So you're not just against something, you're for something. Employment practices, the end of housing discrimination, the right to vote. Okay, that's the first thing. The second thing is, have you tried to resolve this problem peacefully without a march? Have you gone to the appropriate committee? Have you gone to the appropriate company and tried to settle this? You know, what you want, can we get it peacefully? Third, if the answer is no, you gotta fight for this, then your point comes into bear. Let's be trained on what a nonviolent demonstration looks like. And let's be prepared that when they curse you, when they throw something on you, as I've had thrown on me, when they hurl insults at you, how will you respond? For God's sakes, do not provoke, because all some folk want is to be provoked, to beat you to death. And then fourth, if you're gonna go on the march, you've gotta sign a waiver you got to sign a form that commits you to nonviolence. Most folks marching today have done none of those things. And that's yeah. why things can get out of hand. Yes, and we might end up finding ourselves in some worse positions inadvertently, even though the issues that are being raised and brought to bear need to be addressed, and they are important. So I guess I'm hearing you say, and I knew we've covered even on my program before, this four-step approach that Dr. Martin Luther King took to how to resolve issues. We've definitely talked about that, especially during Martin Luther King weeks and different years. And I think that what I'm seeing is an opportunity for people to learn about this again, because I don't think the average person is aware of this approach. Well, you know, I want you to remember, I want your audience to remember 
how few people were really involved in this. You look at Martin Luther King Jr. 52 years later and you get the impression that the whole world was on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or the whole world was at the March on Washington or the whole world agreed with him. In point of fact, Dr. King was reviled by a great many people in this country and it took another 15 years for Ronald Reagan to begrudgingly agree to the Martin Luther King holiday. We need to be reintroduced, not to his biography, but to his methodology. Every time there is a burning of a police car or the looting of a place of business, we diminish him because that's precisely what he never wanted. Why? Because the looting then becomes the story and not the knee on the neck or the looting becomes the story and not the absence of a fair employment practice. We got to do better. We can't let a peaceful march end up every night with a burning building. That's just counterproductive. Yes, and it definitely dilutes the message and takes the focus off of the real problem, for sure. So I, I really appreciate what you're saying about that. Now, if we turn our attention back to the business environment again, and you've said this earlier about this delicate balance that businesses have between, let's say, making a profit and also operating by some moral principles and by some integrity. And sometimes businesses are faced with decisions where they can make a lot of money doing something that's not the right thing. And I'd like for you to comment on that, and particularly at this time now, because not only are we in this pandemic of injustice, as we've been talking about, we're also in coronavirus pandemic, and some businesses are downsizing, and they're going through all kinds of difficulties financially. And so it's very important to think about how they're going to balance this profit and principle. So what would you like to say about that? Let me quote the governor of New York State, Andrew Cuomo. He was giving daily updates on how coronavirus was spreading in New York State. And because New York State was the home base of so many major American corporations, he was sending a warning about this issue. He was saying, every time I hear the phrase downsizing, coronavirus has given us a chance to do some downsizing. He said, why is it always that you want to downsize on the backs of the working poor as opposed to maybe shedding some profit for the sake of keeping your workforce in place. It's always a trade-off between stockholders who wanna maintain their level of income and your workforce that you may decide, okay, in order to reward my stockholders, I'm gonna reduce my overhead, I'll reduce the number of my employees So the upper echelon who need the money the least are the ones who are protected, while the people who need the money the most, entry-level positions, minimum wage jobs, maybe living wage jobs, but certainly folks who are going to miss the next paycheck are the first ones to go. Cuomo had a wonderful quote. Why is it that whenever there is an economic problem, it is the poorest people who pay the highest price? That phrase haunts me. Why is it that every time the country goes through a crisis, people who are already poor end up being made poorer because we're determined to safeguard the rich? 
Let me jump in on that and ask you a question about that as well, because suppose a company decided to forego some profit and actually retain more of their workforce, people who are living paycheck to paycheck and day to day, and who may be in that category of some of the poorer people, what would be the benefit to the organization? Just as we discussed before, the benefit of even having a diverse workforce, there's also a benefit to doing something like what we're talking about now. How would you describe that benefit to a company and an organization when they see the upside on the shareholder value, not necessarily on the workforce value or the participation of the workforce in, let's say, equitable pay and other matters? Everybody who's got a job is not just a wage earner, they're a purchaser. They buy products. They go to the dry cleaners. They go to the restaurant. They go to the movie theater. They buy automobiles. They buy houses. To the extent that you impact a person's ability, not just to earn a living, but to spend money in the marketplace, you're shooting yourself in the foot. Who's going to buy all the stuff that you're making? The people who are you know, on your board of directors, by and large, they're already millionaires. The folks who are your upper level management, okay, they're gonna be all right. But the people who you count on to buy your goods and services, if they lose their job, you save the bottom line, you think, but what you've saved in salary costs and benefits, you lose in terms of commodity sales because Ford stops having cars sold. AMC movie theaters stop seeing ticket purchases. Restaurants stop seeing folks coming in to take a takeout meal. It makes no sense if you think about the way in which the economy actually works. And so you don't want to hurt the folk who are supporting you, not just earning money, but spending it. So it's the difference between thinking about the short-term objectives versus the long-term. And a lot of times, I think many corporate leaders think of the long-term in terms of the shareholder value. And you're saying there's really a market here of people who are buyers and who would actually make more purchases. And so if you disenfranchise that group, you are actually still harming yourself, which really speaks to the fact that it's an ecosystem and you really can't harm this one over here without at the same time ultimately harming yourself, even if you can't see it in the short term. The more people you have in the workforce, the more folk you will have in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. They earn and they spend. By and large, poorer people do not invest. They can't afford to do it yet. What they earn, they spend. It goes right back into the economy. To fail to see that is, as you said, really short-sighted. Exactly. So let me ask you now something maybe a little more personal about this. You are a leader I know who's been willing to take many stands multiple times and to participate in nonviolent social change initiatives, even at personal cost. So tell us about the time when you spent three days in jail with Dr. Ralph Abernathy. (laughs) What did you learn from that experience? How did those three days impact your life? Tell us about that. Three days with him, two days in jail. 
Yeah, uh, three days in total, two days in jail. I was in New York City. I was uh, working with the uh, SCLC program Operation Breadbasket, which was the division of uh, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference that dealt with economic development. And the AMP food store was guilty of what we've been talking about. No upper level management in the food store, nobody on the board of directors for the AMP food chain, and not many store managers. So we started a boycott of AMP in order to get folks to not buy from them until they realized what is the power of black purchasing. And if you lost black purchasing power, what happens to your bottom line? So we went to their headquarters somewhere in Manhattan, might have been 34th Street, for a sit-in with the intention of being arrested for trespassing. Ralph Abernathy, who was then the president of SCLC because Dr. King had been killed four years earlier, came to get arrested with us to dramatize this issue. As it happened, we did get arrested at about seven o'clock that night. New York City paddy wagons came and took us down to the downtown jail and threw us all in jail for a period of time. Don't you know, as luck would have it, I got thrown in jail with Ralph, David, Abernathy, and there we sat, just the two of us, to quote the song. I got a lesson, I got a history lesson on Martin King, I got a history lesson on Albany, Georgia, Birmingham, Alabama, all the battleground states, until we were finally released on what they call in the legal world, our own recognizance, which means you don't have to post any bail. And in point of fact, they never pressed the issue. A&P did not want to take Ralph Abernathy to court because that would just make the matter worse. And so they did finally settle. And I don't know now who they hired, but Operation Breadbasket, nationally led by Jesse Jackson, agreed to a settlement, but it was the result of going to jail, picketing, running the risk. You don't know what jail is like till that door clangs behind you and you don't have the key. You're there yeah. till somebody comes to unlock the door. And that really gets back to that word you used earlier about Dr. Martin Luther King, the courage that it oh. takes to actually put yourself at risk and you don't know what's really gonna happen or what the outcome is gonna be or how long you're gonna be there. Can I tell you a story about Dr. King? Yes, please. He was arrested for a traffic violation that had taken place when he was you know, driving somewhere in Georgia. And they sent him to the worst work camp prison in Georgia in chains in the back of a police car with a German shepherd police dog growling in his face and they put him on the chain gang. Now, we all knew that the intent of that was he would accidentally fall down the stairs or mistakenly hang himself in his cell until Robert Kennedy called Coretta Scott King because he'd heard about this. Now, this is during the campaign in 1960. Kennedy was losing that campaign at that point. Robert Kennedy called Coretta Scott King to ask, what can we do? She said, well, if you call the governor of Georgia and get my husband out of jail, that's what you could do. 
John Fitzgerald Kennedy called the governor of Georgia to get Martin Luther King Jr. released from that prison in Georgia. When Dr. King got out, he told that story to the national news media and the polls shifted because all the black people who had been Republicans because of Abraham Lincoln became Democrats because of one phone call that John Kennedy made to the governor of Georgia to get Dr. King out of jail. And so John Kennedy owes his election, not because, you know, he was smart or anything, he was, but because he made one phone call that changed the course of American history. That's a great example of being able to use your power and influence for whatever position you're in and to lend it to a cause that's actually important and that you could close your eyes about, not pay attention to. And we don't know what would have happened to Dr. King had he stayed there and whether he ever would have gotten out. We we know he was not going to come out of there alive. That's what seems likely. Exactly. And unfortunately, those same things are still happening today to many other people, as you said earlier, who are being imprisoned unlawfully and inappropriately and may serve 25 years or or something may happen to them while they're in prison. They may not come out alive to tell about it. And they really were not criminals. They were innocent of whatever they were charged with. And I think people don't realize that these things are still happening today. It's not like, okay, this was back in Dr. Martin Luther King's time and we're no longer having that experience. That's not true. Ahmaud Arbery was shot while jogging in the same state of Georgia in February of this year. That's right. Yeah, February of this year. Breonna Taylor shot and killed in Louisville. George Floyd suffocated to death in Minnesota this year. That's right. And they're not the only ones in long string of names that we could name of people who have been in similar situations. And so for those who might be the Robert Kennedys of the world, the JFKs of the world, there's still a place for them to intervene and to lend their voice. Because as Dr. Martin Luther King says, the decent people of society, when they are silent, it actually, I would say, put the nails in the coffin yeah, for people. Yeah, 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 yeah. And his, his famous phrase was, he is not nearly as concerned about the hateful words of the bad people as he is about the appalling silence of people who think they are good. That's right. But they lack courage. That's because exactly you have to risk something to make that phone call. That's right. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. So now I know that you have a son, you have a daughter-in-law, you have granddaughters. What are your concerns about the world that they are facing right now? How are you preparing them? And how would you suggest parents prepare their children for the workplace of today and tomorrow. I have a son who is 40 years old, who lives in New York City, who is terrified of the police because every encounter he's ever had with the police has not been because he approached them for help, because they approached him for pure harassment. One day he was walking down the street in Brooklyn. They live in Brooklyn, New York. And a police officer stopped him to say, could you please come inside the precinct? We'd like to ask you a question. He said, do what? So we're looking for somebody. And you look like you might be the person that we're looking for. We just want to 
talk to you about it. He said, am I under arrest? They said, no. Have you got a warrant for my arrest? They said, no. He said, there's no way in the world I'm going to voluntarily go into a New York City police precinct for you to ask me about something because you're looking for somebody. Why does my son, who's done nothing wrong, have to be stopped on the streets of Brooklyn by a police officer who says, maybe you could possibly be the person we're looking for Come into the precinct so we can, he would never have come out of there not arrested. So or I harmed have, in some other way. I told my son, listen, if you ever get stopped by the police, don't provoke. Don't make any sudden moves. Don't get irritated. Don't give in. Be respectful. But I'm sure he did not go in that precinct because we told him over and over again, if they don't have a warrant for your arrest, if they haven't stopped you for a crime, exercise your right to a fair trial and to not be falsely accused. That's a constitutional right. Now, for my granddaughters, who are both gorgeous, me too. I really am afraid for young women in this ultra-masculine, patriarchal culture where women are for the taking. And I want to say to people, women are not commodities to be grabbed and exploited and then dispensed with when you're through with them. Raise your daughters to be women with integrity, but to learn how to say no and stand by that. And in the workplace, I say again, the most important thing employers can do is enforce whatever your policies are or have policies against sexual exploitation and assault. So you really are talking about empowering children today so that they know how to stand up for themselves and in a way that doesn't bring more harm to them at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely a fine line you have to walk. I grew up in the era when I know about that as well. I mean, certainly. Let me shift to a a different set of questions. I want you to think about the worker out there, and maybe they're not the leader, as we've been talking about so far. What words of encouragement do you have for those people in the workplace who might feel voiceless or disenfranchised or discouraged? Mm -hmm. What, What might you say to them? You know, the one thing that all of us have is a personal example. If you are a white person, particularly a white male, at a time when white men seem to be under the umbrella that all of them are racists and all of them are bigots and all of them are sexual assaulters, the one thing you can do to disprove that is to behave in a way that conflicts with the narrative. Treat your coworkers with respect. Treat people the way you yourself would like to be treated. Watch your language and your vocabulary. It's amazing how quickly a racial or sexual slur can fall from somebody's lips. Mahatma Gandhi used to use this phrase, be the change you want to see in the rest of the world. We all have a sense of personal responsibility. You haven't got any authority except over yourself and your own vocabulary. Exercise that authority. 
Great. I love the call to action about doing what you can do because you certainly can't live for somebody else. Right. You can only live yeah. your own life in that sense. Right. So now, before I ask you my final sort of question, I want to come to the place where I know you've written, as you said, 17 books. The 18th is on its way out. And you've told us in the episode one about one of those books. What is it that you're passionate about now and where can readers find and purchase your books? Yeah. Well, they're all on Amazon. Uh, so anybody that wants to just type in my name and Amazon.com, then they'll all they'll all show up. The picture of the cover will show up and, and everything, and you can order them that way. I've published with three different publishers. So I won't mention all of those, but Amazon.com. My current passion really dovetails into this last discussion because even though I spent my life in the church, I am so terribly displeased with the way in which the church, which is comprised largely of African-American women, has denied them leadership roles in the church. I'm passionate about supporting women in ministry. I'm passionate about tearing down this male-only stronghold of deacons and preachers and church leaders. I was raised in the church where the pastor was a woman, so I've never had this bias in my own life. But I'm amazed that from one generation to the next, there are still people who want to cap women's aspirations for leadership in the society, in the government, in the public sphere, and even inside the church. My passion is liberty and justice for all, and that means men and women, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, straight, gay, uh, we've got to get past the 1790 Immigration Act, where this is a white person's country, and open the door so all of us can enjoy liberty and justice. And I would imagine that, of course, when you have more inclusive voices, you're also gaining that talent that comes with those people, the special giftings of those individuals. And without that, you're missing something. As a pastor... If I didn't have a female clergy with me, I can't tell you the number of issues raised by women I don't have a clue about. But I can say, listen, wait a minute. Let me bring in Reverend Fields, Reverend Cheney, Reverend Waite. These are the women I have on the stand. If you don't mind, would you tell them this story? They have my full confidence and my full support. But they could be much more help to you on this than I can. And they come, and I'll tell you to have them around with their eyes and their ears and their experience made all the difference in my ministry. Yeah, that's very similar to what you were saying about the business context. Yeah. Having people who look like the constituents because they're gonna be able to relate and understand issues and know what to do next. Yeah, right. absolutely. But they had the full support of whoever is in charge. Exactly, that's the thing and that's it came crucial. with some authority, Right. yes. So let me ask you my final question. And in this question, anything else you have not mentioned yet, feel free to say. You know that my audience is predominantly business executive leaders. What additional words of wisdom do you want to leave for that audience of business executives before we end today? When I was a pastor in Cleveland, there was something called the Greater Cleveland Roundtable. It was a group of business leaders, 
local political leaders, educational leaders, and religious leaders, and nonprofits. And they met together on a regular basis, like once a month for 7.30 a.m. breakfast. And each group was bringing both its concerns and its areas of power to bear. I found out that one call from me to a CEO about some civic issue was one thing. One call from another CEO to a CEO about supporting a poverty program or supporting increase in the minimum wage program made all the difference in the world. If you want to make your city a better city and you're a business leader at the highest level, take personal responsibility for relating to your peer group. Don't send the vice president for human relations to a meeting when what we need is the voice of the CEO or of the board chair. Commit at the highest level to these values and watch what happens when your voice speaks about what you're committed to. And then you see the spillover effect, both in other companies and in your own company, because you've taken the stand first. You want to be a leader, try to lead your peers. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McMichael, for being my guest on these two different episodes of The Voice of Leadership. I really appreciate your presence and I appreciate the wisdom that you shared with us and also the historical pieces because you spent time personally with Dr. Martin Luther King, also with Dr. Ralph Abernathy. These are just important stories that we don't want to lose in the current day and in the current narrative. So thank you for coming to share that. And also because you've been in so many places of leadership in the community, in the church, also in the schoolhouse. That's a very broad perspective, and it's given us a chance to look at with liberty and justice for all from a broader context. So thank you again for being here with me. Thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed it ever so much. Fantastic. And to my audience out there, the voice of leadership, I thank you for being with us for these two episodes as well. And just remember, you can use your voice for something good for something effective. You can lend your voice to those who may not have a voice. And as Dr. McMichael has said, try leading your own peers. That takes some courage and it leads to results. So thanks for being here and I'll see you next time. As an executive business leader, you have many difficult decisions to make every single day. And it's important to think about how do you develop your people? How do you launch and develop high-performance teams? And how do you create a culture that wins every time? If you would like to take a look at your organization and to talk about the wisdom and guidance that would propel you to create a best place to work and also competitive advantage, then I invite you to apply for a consultation to work with me. Go to my website, www.transleadership.com. Go to the services page and under organizational consultation, you will see a tab that says, contact us. That's where you request a consultation. So if you are an executive business leader in a medium to large size company, then I look forward 
to receiving your application and having a conversation with you. You've been listening to The Voice of Leadership with me, Dr. Karen Wilson-Starks. And I want to give a special thanks to jazz saxophonist Ron McMillan for granting us permission to use his gifted music on our show. Thanks for listening. And remember to go to my website, transleadership.com, for more strategies, insights, and leadership resources.